spend some time with this week. We pray that you would help us to this, the time that we have spent and will continue to spend with them to be very God-glorifying time, that you would be exalted as a result. And we pray now as we look at your word that you would work within our hearts, that you would convict us, you would change us, you would cause uh, your name to be lifted up as a result of, of your word. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I got myself into a little bit of a predicament. Our garage door was not opening properly. And so I went over to the garage door opener and got up on a ladder and and took down the the box and peered up in that garage door opener and realized that a little plastic piece had had broken there in the garage door opener. So Whitney called and ordered a replacement part and I took the, when it arrived, I took the replacement part and looked up there at the garage door opener and and realized that this was a very important uh, little plastic piece. The plastic piece was attached to a bigger plastic piece, and and every single piece in that garage door opener attached to this piece that had broken. And so I realized that this was going to be a rather extensive job for me. Uh, You realize I double majored in history and literature, which means I, I double majored in two subjects that don't prepare you for the real world. And so I, I took my uh, massive uh, amount of engineering ability, and I, I looked up at that, at that garage door opener. I said, okay, I, I need a camera. And, and so what I did is as I took apart this garage door opener, I took pictures. As I would take off a piece, I would take a picture. This is what it was is ideally supposed to look like eventually. And so as I, as I took this thing apart, I thought, okay, I think I can do this until one moment I'm taking off what I believe is one of the, the last pieces of this garage door opener, and I hear this clanging sound. A- and I look down, and I see scattered on the floor all these various little pieces that had just magically appeared out of somewhere. And as I'm contemplating those pieces, I hear a clattering on the other side, and I turn over, and there's some more pieces that have just kind of scattered there on the garage floor. And now I think I'm sunk. Uh, there's all these little pieces. I have no idea where they go. And later that night, I start trying to reassemble this garage door opener. And what I found is, is this. That the people who designed this garage door opener, apart from being very sick people, uh, they, they also want you to put things together in a very certain order. It's not like you can just kind of willy-nilly start to put things together. They have a design that this garage door opener is supposed to fulfill a function. It's designed to fulfill this function. You put the pieces back together in a certain way. Now, I had three things that were kind of helping me. Uh, one is that I had taken these pictures, and so I had some idea of how it was supposed to go. I, I had a rather poorly drawn diagram in the owner's manual, and, and my friend Don had come over, and he, he's an engineer, and he had, he had not told me that I was completely crazy. And so I thought, okay, I have an engineer that says I'm at least on the right track. So what I did is I began to to put these pieces back together, and and again, they go in a certain sequence, and what I found is that oftentimes I would get to step 14 and realize that I had done something wrong on step 2. And so I'd have to take everything apart, go back to step 2, I'd get down to step 13 and realize that a wire was missing, and so I have to go back to the beginning. Uh, this, This lasted quite a while. I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me, but let's just say I didn't sleep a lot that night. At the very end of the project, I put everything back together, and uh, to this day, the garage door does open and close, and so I consider it a success in that sense, Uh, but there's still a minor problem that the light doesn't come on and off very 
at all. Now, uh, don't tell me, don't come up to me church afterwards and say, now, Daniel, did you try the light bulb? Yes, I tried changing the light bulb. Okay. But the, the point is this. There's a certain sequence of events that had to take place in order for this garage door opener to be put together exactly the right way. And because at some point I left out a, a tiny step, I think I got a wire in the wrong place, now the light doesn't work quite the way that it was intended to do. Sometimes we view our participation in God's kingdom like that garage door opener. What I mean is, is this. We believe that, that God has laid out a certain plan for us to participate in his kingdom, and unless we follow through in perfect obedience step by step, our, our belief is that we'll miss out in the kingdom opportunities that God has for us. We believe that unless we follow through in ex the exact right sequence of things that God has called us to do, then perhaps we'll, we'll miss out on his kingdom plan for us. For example, a person might say, you know, I, I began my Christian life well. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ and was following God well. And then at some point in time, I, I got caught up in immorality. And because I got caught up in immorality, I, I veered off God's intended plan for me. Now, sure, I, I've repented. I've tried to get back on the right path. But I've, I've missed out on God's perfect plan for my life. And I'll never get to experience the fullness of his kingdom plan for me because of my sin. Or a person might say, look, our, when, I, when I got married, uh, I made some, some bad decisions. Uh, we we did some, some, uh, made some wrong decisions in our dating relationship, and, and now our, our marriage to this day suffers as a result of that sin. And so I'm never going to be able to experience the fullness of God's kingdom plan for me because of my sin. Or as parents, we might say, you know, I made some terrible mistakes as a parent in some very formative years in my children's lives, and so I'm never going to be able to experience the fullness of God's kingdom plan for me because of my sin. I don't want to minimize the consequences of sin. Certainly there are real and long and lasting consequences sometimes because of sin. But let me just suggest to you that that way of viewing God's kingdom and our participation in God's kingdom is not a biblical way of understanding the kingdom of God. Our sin does not keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom at any moment in time after we have repented of it. This morning, what we're going to see, in fact, is that God, God uses repentant sinners to help establish his kingdom. We're going to look at the story of Zechariah here in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66, and we're going to see that, that God uses repentant sinners to help establish his kingdom. He uses repentant sinners in his kingdom-building process. What I want to do is look at three principles related to God's kingdom and repentant people. The first principle is this. The first principle is that God's kingdom plans are preserved by his mercy. God's kingdom plans for us are preserved by his mercy. And we'll look at verses 57 and 58. The second principle we'll look at is this. Our repentance is demonstrated by our actions. And we'll talk about that. Our repentance is demonstrated by our actions. And then lastly, we'll see our repentance results in God's glory. Our repentance results in God's glory. Uh, let's look first here at this idea that God's kingdom plans for us are preserved by his mercy. Verse 57, verse 58 say this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. 
And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, remember, Mary has perhaps just left her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 56 seems to imply that Mary has left. And now this time comes for Elizabeth to give birth to a son. Notice that Zechariah hasn't appeared for a while. If you'll notice as we go through Luke and as you read through the book of Acts, that it's kind of a literary device that Luke uses. He'll introduce a character, pull them off the stage, introduce a character, pull them off the stage. So, for example, this morning we're going to meet John the Baptist. Luke's going to pull him off the stage. We're not going to see him again until chapter 3. You see this a lot in the book of Acts. He'll introduce Peter, pull Peter back, introduce Paul, pull Paul back. It's something Luke does. Now, what's interesting about Zechariah is we haven't heard, literally, from Zechariah since his encounter with the angel in the temple. Whenever the angel talks about Elizabeth to Mary, he doesn't even mention Zechariah. Here in verses 57 and 58, we don't hear a mention of Zechariah. But remember what the angel told Zechariah earlier in Luke chapter 1. He said a couple things that we see fulfilled here in verses 57 and 58. The first thing he would say, first thing he told Zechariah that we see fulfilled here is that Elizabeth will bear a son. And what happens in the text? Elizabeth bears a son. The second thing that he said was that there would be much rejoicing. And what do we see in the text? We see that her neighbors and relatives hear that the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Don't leave verses 57 and 58 too quickly. Because what we see here is a very important principle. God's kingdom plans for us are preserved by his mercy. Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives are rejoicing with her because of God's great mercy in her life. And even they don't understand the fullness of God's mercy in the situation. I want you to just take just a minute and think about the mercy of God. Over and over again, in, in Luke chapter 1, we see God's mercy mentioned. For example, earlier in chapter 1, as, as Mary's talking, she says in, in verse 50, she says, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, he says, Mary says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Zechariah, later as he begins, uh, we're going to look at this next week, his prophecy in verses 67 and following, verse 78, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. God's mercy is an essential attribute of God that we must understand if we're going to understand how he establishes his kingdom. Remember, as we went through the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. God's mercy is that which brought us into relationship with him in the first place. We see this same idea in, in Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, uh, Paul writes, it says, he says, uh, when the, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, he didn't save us because of our works, but instead, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Understand this about God's mercy and the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is all about mercy. You do not enter the kingdom of God on your own works. You do not continue in the kingdom of God on the basis of your own works. Don't misunderstand me. 
works are very crucial. And if you're a person who, who has no works, who's not enjoying the, 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 the joy of obedience, you need to question whether or not you've actually entered the kingdom of God, whether the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in Titus has actually taken place in your life. But that's a sermon for a different Sunday. What I want you to understand today is that a person does not enter the kingdom of God on their own works, and the, the basis of one standing the continual standing in the kingdom of God is not their own works either. It is God's mercy and God's mercy alone. God's kingdom plans for you are preserved by his mercy and not by your works. Now, oftentimes we have a wrong view about our relationship to God's kingdom plans. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this first point this morning, more time than the other two points, because it's such an important principle to understand and so crucial to the understanding this, this paragraph in Luke chapter 1. In fact, remember the context in which this passage occurs. Luke chapter 1, we're talking about the, the announcement of this, this coming king. We see this in chapter 2 as well. This, this coming Messiah. Zechariah has been told that his son will be the, the forerunner to this great king. Mary is told that there's going to be this king who rules a kingdom without end. And now we see that, we also see in those stories that unlikely people are used to participate in this kingdom building. A person who's an outcast, Elizabeth is used. She says that God has taken away her reproach among people. In her culture, she was, she was an outcast. Uh, she, there was a, a certain amount of reproach being without child. God is using unlikely people, and one of the unlikely people he's using is this repentant sinner, Zechariah. Now, here are some wrong views that we often have as we think about God's kingdom. We see, okay, God has this kingdom plan for me, and we think of it a lot like my garage door opener. If I want to participate rightly in God's kingdom plan for me, I must follow this path exactly. And so I have step one, and then I need to move to step two, and then I have to move to step three. And if I veer off this path at all, God's kingdom plans for me are finished. So, for example, sometimes, think, sometimes people think this. They say, well, I've, I've followed along here, and then all of a sudden I, I fell into sin, and now God is, is punishing me. Now God is, I'm experiencing God's, God's punishment and his displeasure. That's not, I believe, a very biblical way to understand God's corrective hand in our lives. I want you to think about a couple passages with me. In fact, in fact turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 should be a passage that may comfort many of you. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul tells us something very incredible. It says, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Understand that the, the amazing truth there in chapter 1. Verse, or chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the person who has recognized they're a sinner, turned from that sin, and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they are now no longer under the condemnation. They are no longer under the wrath of God. There is no condemnation. Well, maybe just a little bit. No, no there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Continues verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit uh, 
thanks to the work of Christ and his righteousness, we now have a, a righteousness that comes from God. And as God looks upon us, those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we now no longer experience the wrath and condemnation of God. And that is a very hard truth sometimes for us to understand. Continue on in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 34. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And, and so now as we think about that, that path of obedience that God calls us to walk on, and, and certainly we should, and, and certainly the person who's a genuine believer is going to have a, a heartfelt desire to do so, but as we find ourselves walking along God's, and in God's kingdom plan for us and, and find ourselves in disobedience, we have to understand this. We are not experiencing the wrath or the condemnation of God even as we disobey. You say, well, Daniel, aren't there consequences of sin? Absolutely. But think about this very carefully. The hand of God that is upon a disobedient believer is the loving hand of a father. Whenever Hannah was 13 days old, I've shared this before, but she had some very serious health problems. And then in those, during those early hours, we weren't sure if she was even going to live, and if she was going to live, what the long-term health consequences would be. And I, I called a family member, and this family member and I were, were talking about this, this terrible situation. I, I, I talked to him, explained the situation, hung up, called back a little bit later, and, and gave, gave him an update. And he said, uh, Daniel, I, I can't help wondering, is God punishing me for something I've done? I said, I've had the exact same question. <laughs> Maybe at some point in my life there was something I was supposed to do and I, I didn't do it right and, and now God's punishing me because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And, and maybe some of you have felt that way at times as well. As hard times have come, as, as you've experienced uh, the consequences of, of sin you've done in the past, he, here's what I believe we see in Romans chapter 8. God doesn't condemn the believer. Hebrews 12 is a better description of the the, the, the hand of God in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a much more biblical way, that is the biblical way to understand the hand of God upon the life of a disobedient believer. It's the loving hand of a father who is correcting a believer, calling them back to his kingdom work, his loving arms. And so as we think about this, this path of obedience, God's, God's kingdom plan for us, it's wrong to say, well, once I, once I veer off God's kingdom plan, then I'm, I'm, I'm in sin and God's going to punish me. That's not a right way to view God's kingdom work. Here's another wrong way to view God's kingdom work. Sometimes we think this about God's kingdom plans for us. We think, well, God has this one perfect will. God has this very specific detailed plan for my life. And it's my responsibility, if I really want to be involved in his kingdom, to figure out exactly what I'm supposed to do in every circumstance. And so I need to figure out the right job. I need to figure out the, the right clothes to wear. And I need to make sure I buy the right car. I need to make sure I, I marry the right person. Because, man, if I take one false step, whoosh, I'm in some alternate universe where I'm not in God's perfect kingdom plan for me anymore. 
you ever felt that way? There's a, some authors that, that espouse this view, and they wrote a book, they contributed a book called How Then Shall We Choose? And they present this scenario. They say there's a, a guy named Joe, and he wanted to, to marry this, this uh, young lady named Nancy. And uh, Joe and Nancy fall in love, but there's a little bit of a problem. Joe was a very strong, committed believer. Nancy, not so much. And Joe, as he thinks about whether or not he should marry Nancy, feels kind of the tugging of the Holy Spirit's heart, hey, this isn't a good match. Joe decides to go ahead and plunge in and get married anyway. And the authors say this, as they espouse this wrong view, this wrong understanding of God's work and kingdom work. They say, well, now Joe, at some point in his life, is going to feel called to deeper ministry. Nancy is going to hold him back. And Joe, for the rest of his life, is going to wonder, what if I had just done what God wanted me to do and, and married the right person? That is a wrong understanding of how we participate in God's kingdom work. Let me tell you just a couple problems with that, okay? First of all, there's just a logical problem, right? Let's say that Joe and Nancy do uh, thwart God's perfect ordained plan for their lives, and they get married, and God's like, oh, man, there goes that plan. Well, now, Joe and Nancy have children. You know what those children are? They are outside the perfect will of God. It is impossible that anyone could ever marry those kids and be in God's perfect plan because they weren't supposed to exist in the first place. Okay. You see the logical problem? If God's will is laid out in such a way that any time we make any misstep, then we're in deep trouble, it's just not a very logical way to think. It's also not a very practical way to live. If it's true that, that there's only one specific plan that I can, can follow, and, and I have to understand not just what's, what's laid out in Scripture for me, but I have to get into God's mind and figure out his specific plans in other areas of my life, just uh, practically, how am I going to do that? It leads people to do some, some pretty wacky things, some kind of hocus-pocus Christianese stuff, trying to read tea leaves and things like that. You might think of a person who's, who's wondering whether or not they're called to missions. Well, I, man, I don't want to step off God's kingdom plans for me because then I'll be in some sort of alternate universe and that won't be God's plan for me. I've got to figure out whether or not I'm actually called to, min to missions. So they, 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 they just look for signs everywhere. The problem with looking for signs is that we also often uh, cherry-pick the evidence, right? So a guy walks into the library and there on a, a table he walks and he sees this book called You and Missions. God, are you calling me to missions? If I open my eyes and I see the book again, I'll know. It's still there. Lord, I, I'm called. Well, what he didn't, he's cherry-picking the evidence. He, he walked through hundreds of books as he came to that book. He saw dozens of titles, and yet that's the title he fixates on. Uh, not you, the plumber, okay? Uh, he, fixes, he, he, looks at, he looks at the evidence in a certain way. It's not a very practical way to live as we look for signs of we don't want to veer off his perfect plan. Another problem with this thinking is it's not very biblical. It's not the way that God calls us to live our lives. God nowhere says, look, if, if you veer off this, this perfect plan, now, now I do believe that God does have a very specific foreordained plan for us. I just don't believe that we're necessarily called to know every aspect of it. I, I don't believe we are called to know every aspect of it. Instead, what does God call us to do? He calls us to look at his revealed will and follow it very closely. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6, in Ephesians chapter 6, he'll be, when, when Paul is talking to the slaves, he, he says, look, uh, don't work as, as by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but as servants of God, doing the will of God from the heart. The idea is that there is that a person who's walking according to God's will is going to be a person who's, who's obedient in those areas into which God has called them to obey. Zechariah, Zechariah was a person who was called by God to repent, to turn from that sin, and Zechariah does that. And now, despite Zechariah's sin, what do we see in verses 57 and 58? We see that the angel did exactly what he, would, he said he would do, despite Zechariah's sin. Here's the application. Here's the application. Be a part of God's kingdom plan. You become a part of God's kingdom plan by God's mercy, and you continue to be a part of God's kingdom plans by his mercy. And so often, believers say, you know what? Uh, I-, I wanted to do ministry. I wanted to, be, I wanted to have a great marriage, but, but man, I messed up. And so because I messed up, I- I'm, out of God's, uh, revealed, I'm out of God's plan for my life, and so, uh, oh well. I- sin in the past, your own sin or the sin of other people, does not excuse you from involvement in God's kingdom ministry. You can't say, well, you know what, I wanted to be involved in ministry, I had this great plan to be involved in ministry, but man, I, I got burned in the past. Now, now I'm just, I'm unable to do what God's called me to do. Or say, you know what, I wanted to have this great marriage, I wanted to have this marriage that glorified God, but, but man, we, we messed up in the past, and you know, oh well, I, I just can't be obedient now like I, I, would, I would have been able to do otherwise. That's not a biblical way to understand kingdom work. God's kingdom plans for us begin by his mercy, and they are preserved by his mercy. And no matter what circumstance you find yourself in this morning, God's call to you is to be obedient to his revealed will for your life. Second principle we see here about God's kingdom work and repentant people is this. Our repentance is demonstrated by our actions. Our repentance is demonstrated by our actions. Look at verse 59. It says, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. He said, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. What do we see here? We see that as these, these neighbors gather together, there's this cultural expectation about what this child's name is going to be. They, they come, and it's, it's like they've already appeared with a monogram blanket, a little ZBZ, Zechariah Ben Zechariah. And they, are, we're ready, let's, let's circumcise this kid, and let's, let's call him Zechariah. And, and, and uh, Elizabeth is very firm. It's, like, it's almost a very, very, very forceful way to say this. No. No, no he, he shall be called John. People are like, um, there's no one in your family named John. Apparently, Zechariah Zachariah had believed the angel's report. Despite his initial skepticism, he's turned from that pattern of thinking and, and now has believed the angel's report and communicated very forcefully to Elizabeth concerning what they would call this child. The people aren't convinced by what Elizabeth says. and They say, okay, uh, 
they step back from her. Let's find the father. Uh, this crazy old lady is saying some silly stuff. They say, hey, Zachariah, <laughs> what, what do you want to call this, this kid? And he says, bring me. It's kind of interesting, too. I don't understand why they do this. Uh, it says they, they made motions to him. He couldn't speak, right? Now, now maybe, now maybe it's, it's like what you do whenever someone can't understand you and you're speaking a foreign language. You, you talk more, more loudly and slowly, thinking perhaps they'll understand you. Or maybe it's a situation, the word here can also mean that, that, that deaf, and so maybe he's mute and deaf. Whatever the case, they make motions to him, what he wants to call him. He takes the writing tablet and writes, his name is John. Zechariah was participating fully in God's kingdom plans at that point. There was a point in Zechariah's life where he had been disobedient. There was a point in Zechariah's life where for a moment he had lacked faith. And it wasn't a tiny moment either. It was a moment when he was in the holy place and an angel visited him and he faltered. Zechariah turned it around. I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7 to think about repentance and, and actions. It's a passage that I've, I've turned to very frequently. It's a passage that's, that's helped me as I've thought through my own sin and, and how to turn from sin and how to, to know whether or not I, I've truly turned from sin. You know, whenever a person has wronged you and they ask you for your forgiveness and they, they've told you that you've, they've, they've turned, they've changed, it's, it's hard for us to know whether or not their repentance is genuine. I would suggest to you that it is also very difficult for us sometimes to know whether or not our own repentance is genuine. For example, we've, we've wronged someone or we've wronged God and we realize that we've done so and, and we want to turn from that. We realize it's wrong and, and so we say, you know, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't done that and, and I don't want to turn. How do we know whether or not at that moment in which we're turning from our past actions, how do we know whether or not that, that repentance, that the sorrow we feel for a sin is genuine? Second Corinthians 7 tells us, look at verse 10. It says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Notice there there's like a little equation. Godly sorrow yields the fruit of repentance. Repentance causes you to turn from sin and leads to salvation, to life. Conversely, there's a worldly sorrow that leads not to repentance but to continued sin that causes death. The problem is this. Those two types of sorrow seem very similar at the beginning. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow look very similar at their initial stages. For example, consider Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. He realizes what he's done. He feels really, really, really bad about it. But what does he do? He feels so bad about it, it produces this hopelessness in him, and he takes his own life. It wasn't a genuine godly sorrow. It was a sorrow that caused him to continue in sin, and it led to death. Saul in the Old Testament is another example of a person who, who felt really, really bad about what he had done, but instead of turning from his sin, he continued his sin in a different direction, and it led to his death as well. Zechariah is different. Zechariah, Zechariah could have done this. 
man, I, I blew it. It was the, 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 the pinnacle of my career, the chance to offer the, set, the, the burning of the incense in the holy place, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. What's more, on top of that, I get visited by an angel, and I mess it up. I'm, I, I, I can't believe what I've done here. And it could have produced in him a sorrow that caused him to become discouraged and depressed, filled him with a sense of hopelessness, and caused him to continue in sin, failing to participate fully in God's kingdom plans for him. Instead, what does he do? Apparently, he acknowledges his sin, and he turns and gets right with the Lord, and he does what God has told him to do. He names the kid John. True repentance, true repentance is shown by our actions, produces godly fruit. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7 goes on. It says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter people in Corinth whom Paul is talking to had recognized that the way they had treated Paul was wrong and they had had turned from that sin. They had a a true repentance and that true repentance or that true grief produced a a, a true repentance, produced this life within them. Some questions you can ask yourself if you're trying to determine whether or not you've had this, this true biblical repentance and these questions are based on verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. One question you can ask yourself is, is I, am I earnest in my desire for change? Do I have an eager desire to do things differently the next time? If, I, if I've sinned in this area, am I, am I willing, to, if I'm in the same circumstance again, to do it differently? Am I willing to have others look closely at my life and be accountable to them? Do I have a sense of, of anger, anger that I've offended a holy God? Am I afraid of continuing in sin? Am I longing to restore relationships that may have been damaged by my sin? Am I, am I zealous? Am I zealous in my pursuit of holiness? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to avenge wrong, to make restitution for wrongs that I've committed to others? Zechariah, as he looks at his sin, as he looks at how he's, he's blown it by verse by, by, before we get to verse 57 of Luke chapter 1, he's turned it around. He's communicated to his wife what God's plan for their lives is, and he's fully participating in it. To say that uh, I ate, I've eaten poorly in the last few weeks is, is putting it mildly. Uh, I've ingested chocolate to degrees that, that no human being should in, ingest chocolate chocolate-covered cherries, fudge, chocolate-covered pretzels. It's just, it's been bad. I'm sure uh, many of you, I hope uh, some of you are with me as well. Not because I want you to sin, I just love company. Um, now, now uh, how, how, do we, how do we turn, how do we repent as we think about poor eating? Very often we say, you know, oh man, I, I just feel so bad about how I've eaten this past, today, today is the day that I turn things, is that chocolate? Uh, maybe just one, right? What does it show? Look, I have, a, I have a sorrow for how I've eaten, but man, it put me in the same circumstances. I'm going to do the same thing again. And, and tomorrow, I'll, I'll really turn from how I've eaten. 
Why? Because we have this, this desire to continue in a pattern that we've already established. It's not true, genuine, biblical repentance. True, genuine, biblical repentance says, look, this is the way that I've been acting. My sorrow isn't just like a, an upset stomach ache and, uh, uh, boy, I don't like the consequences of my sin, but the sin itself bothers me because of how it, it affects my relationship with God. I'm going to turn from the sin and follow after God fully. If we think about the application to our, our lives, we have to tell ourselves and, and ask ourselves, look, is, is my repentance manifested by the fruit it's producing? If, I, if I'm truly sorry for my sin, if I have a, a true sorrow for my sin, it's going to produce true repentance, a desire to turn from sin and seeing that desire to turn from sin manifested in tangible ways. See, as we think about God's kingdom plans for us and the repentance, first of all, we see that God's kingdom plans are preserved by his mercy. Secondly, we see that our repentance is demonstrated by our actions. Uh, the third thing that we see here is, is this. We see that our repentance results in God's glory. At the end of verse 63, after, after Zechariah writes, his name is John, it says they all wondered. He writes this, and, and they, they all wonder. This isn't a, a normal thing to have happen. It would be consistent culturally to, to see Zechariah name his son something that was in accordance with, with a family name. Then verse 64 says this. And immediately at that exact moment, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. As Zechariah has the ability to, to speak again, his first response his first response is to begin to bless God. Remember we said that, that God's discipline in our lives is not a sign of his wrath, but it's a sign of a, of a loving God. God's loving hand of discipline on Zechariah's life was designed to produce repentance, greater holiness on Zechariah's part. That's exactly what it produces. Zechariah's first words out of his mouth are words of praise. It goes on. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Again, I don't want to minimize the consequences of sin. and It's never the right choice to make to sin. But think about this. Think about the fruits that were born of Zechariah's repentance. God's loving hand of discipline upon Zechariah was the inability to speak, perhaps even become deaf. Now, as Zechariah turns from his sin, follows after, the God, after God fully, his neighbors and friends are all around, relatives are all around to, to see this, this moment in time where he follows God in obedience, and as he follows God in obedience, God restores his speech to him, and his first words are words of praise. And the result is this. The result is that fear came upon Fear came upon those who were around him. There was a recognition of, of God at work. Remember, God is using unlikely people. God is using a virgin to have a son. God is using a barren woman to have a child. He's using the outcasts, the people the, that, that Luke's audience would have thought were at the very edges of society. In Luke's culture, it, it was a strange thing to think that that God would use a sinner. 
The idea was that, that one was to be as, as holy as possible because God only used righteous people. Luke is going to turn that idea on its head and says, look, God doesn't use self-righteous people. God uses repentant sinners. And the people in Zechariah's life are able to, to look at Zechariah, and there is a sense of wonderment and fear about what God is doing in their lives. Let me suggest this to you as well by way of application of this principle. God is going to do some amazing things in your life as you are repentant. There are going to be some things that happen in your life as you turn and follow after God that, that go against the grain of your culture. There are going to be things that you do that the other people around you don't do because of your desire to turn and follow after God fully. I'm not talking about legalistic changes. I'm talking about a deep desire, a passion to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a period of, in our marriage where Whitney and I realized that, that we weren't communicating very well. So you know what? Uh, this is a wrong way for us to communicate. We need to make some, some, a radical change here. We want to turn from this fully. And what we realized is this, is we, I uh, had gotten into a, a very uh, bad pattern of watching television. I just really enjoyed uh, watching television. So we, we got radical. We, we threw out our, our TVs. Um, Winnie's not in here this morning, so I can, I can say this. Uh, I, I, put it on, I put it out to the garbage without even talking to her. I put it out on the curb. She came in, where's the TV? I said, well, you see that big dump truck? Uh, it actually has our television in it. <laughs> um, she said, good, good. We talked somewhat about getting rid of it, but not that radical. That's not always the right situation. And years later, we got a television again. But there were some years where people thought we were a little bit crazy, a little bit odd. It wasn't odd for us. It was what God had called us to do at that moment in time because it's, it's what we needed to do in order to follow him fully. There are going to be some, have you ever been around people that, that do things that are just a little bit odd? And they're a little bit odd, and it kind of annoys you a little bit, but you realize it kind of annoys me because it's convicting. There's some ways that, that people live their lives, and man, why would anyone live their life? Actually, actually, it's kind of convicting. Their commitment to the Lord. As you become passionate about following the Lord, there's going to be a sense of, of fear in the people around you. You know what? I'm a little uncomfortable. God seems a little bit more near as I see a person be passionate about following him. Our tendency in our culture, in our North American evangelical culture, is to follow the lowest common denominator. So if another believer watches a television show or is in, involved in a certain activity or, or, or commits a little, just a, a small portion of their time to minister to the Lord, we, we kind of tend to follow the lowest common denominator. But every now and then, there are those people who get sold out to the Lord, and they make us a little bit uncomfortable. Let me suggest this to you. As you turn and follow after God fully, the result will be his glory. God's kingdom plans for us are not like some garage door opener where, man, if you mess up on step 13, step 2 is toast. God's kingdom plan, or mess up on step 2, step 13 is toast. God's kingdom plans for us are part of his sovereign will. And by God's grace, by God's mercy, we enter into his kingdom plans. And by God's grace and by God's mercy, we continue in his kingdom plans. And the repentant are always welcome 
to participate in God's kingdom. This morning, perhaps, you felt weighed down by sin. You said, you know what, I, there's no way that God can ever use me. There's no way that God would ever allow me to participate in the, the great things that he wants me to do. That's not true. God's kingdom is based upon his mercy. And God in his mercy extends, even this morning, the invitation to you to become part of his plan. Because God uses repentant sinners to establish his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do call us to repentance and by your mercy allow us to participate in your plans for us. I pray that you would allow us to continue, continue to bring honor and glory to you as we continually recognize our sin and seek your mercy. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.